If you open up your Bibles to Ezra chapter 9, we're looking at the first two verses of of that chapter this morning. And of course, the title is Keeping an Eye Out. Now, as we've watched the news over the past few months, it seems like every time you turn around, we hear about some new espionage investigation. For example, President Trump's re-election campaign ran some ads on Facebook saying that or claiming that the Chinese-owned short video app TikTok is now spying on Americans, particularly the teenager group, the young people use that video uh, technology, TikTok. In fact, it claims, quote, TikTok has been caught red-handed monitoring what is on your phone's clipboard, end of quote. I don't know if that's true or not, but the point I want to make this morning, one thing you can get from this world, you can count on this world, is someone is always spying on somebody else. Somewhere, someone's sitting back, wanting to spy on their enemies, spy on each other. And so privacy has become a huge issue for us in today's society. Did you know the Department of Defense spends millions of dollars per year trying to collect intelligence on our enemies. They develop new technologies to do this. We have spy satellites that are so sensitive, they can see a guy smoking a cigarette in the middle of the desert at noon. We have electronic equipment that can eavesdrop on any electronical communication you can possibly think of. And we have aircraft with equipment so sensitive, guess what? That person smoking the cigarette there in the desert at noontime, well, that monitoring equipment on the aircraft can tell you what brand of cigarette that guy is smoking. So the point being, we have a lot of this technology. And you would think with all this technology, we would have a heads up on what our enemies are doing, that we'd have some type of clue. But yet, a lot of times it seems like we don't have a clue what's really going on. Because even with the most sophisticated technology, knowing what's going on boils down to one simple thing. Personal observation. Paying attention to what's going on around us. Here's something I found very interesting. Do you know for years, could you guess what the most reliable indicator there was of what what would happen right before a major American military movement. What would you count on? What would be the big indicator of that? Well, some will say, well, it's exercises going on. Uh, Maybe communications. Well, that can be masked and that can be faked. Perhaps a surge in supply and hardware movement. Well, that happens all the time for military exercises and mobility tests. So if it wasn't those things, do you know what the greatest reliable indicator of American Military movement or enforcement or whatever they're going to do. You know what, the, you know what that was? This, I'm, I'm being serious. Pizza deliveries being made in D.C. to key government buildings was the most significant, reliable indicator that American military movement was about to happen. So think of this for a second. This, this, bear with me. All this million-dollar hardware that we have, all the Navy ships, I served on an American submarine. I knew some about that until, well, all the stuff I knew about is all outdated now. But all this equipment we have to gather intelligence, and yet the most reliable thing came down to this. A bunch of teenagers running around 
with a pizza hut on top of their roof of their car making pizza deliveries to key government buildings in Washington, D.C. Huh. And it was said that they could tell this 24 to 48 hours out that this would happen, indicating there would be a major military action. Now, this doesn't mean that all that high-tech equipment is not necessary. But once again, what it does mean is the first line of defense is always personal observation. Being aware of what's going on. Paying attention. This reminds me of my time in the U.S. Navy boot camp. They would teach us how to fold clothes in a certain manner. You had to make your rack or your bed a particular way. Your uniform had to be, your, your gig line, your, your, what they call right here, would have to match with your belt buckle. Everything was told exactly how they wanted it. And the reason I found out later why they did that, because they wanted you to pay attention to detail. You're out there serving on a, on a boat or a submarine, you want people in there who can notice something, hey, that doesn't look right. To be aware of the situation because the greatest threat to us was a fire on board. <laughs> we want people to know how to fight that fire, how to call away that fire, so a whole ship's company could respond. And we can make it through it. You know, as believers, we have a common enemy. And I know what you're thinking right now. Uh, you're talking about Satan, aren't you, Tim? No, I'm not. We have a common enemy. But it goes much deeper than just Satan, per se, because Satan doesn't make us do anything. He tempts us. What am I talking about? I'm talking about sin. God hates sin. And one of our key defenses of sin to keep us away from doing sin is what they did for the military movement, which was called, by the way, the Domino's meter, is to pay attention. To be personally observant of what's going around us. See, we have no hope of defeating sin in our lives if we ignore it. And we have no hope of defeating sin in this church if we ignore it. We have no, no hope of impacting this community and our country with, in this world for Christ if we ignore the sin all around us. And as we look in our passage today, Ezra has arrived in Jerusalem with the second group of exiles. They spent three days hanging around Jerusalem, kind of getting their feet on the ground. And we looked at this about two weeks ago. They prepared, right? They prepared their hearts. They prepared the temple. They prepared the outside world. And because of all this dedicated preparation, they began to observe some things, began to see some things that were going to get in the way. Ezra had equipped the people in such a way they began to recognize sin in their midst and began to hate sin as God does. So that preparation they did, going back before you even came to Jerusalem, what did they do? They fasted. They prayed. They prepared their hearts after they came to Jerusalem. So all this preparation, they're now equipped and they begin to see it. And they recognized four things about the sin that was in their midst. And they made four observations about it. The extent of it. The nature of it the consequences of it, and the instigator. Let's look at our text this morning, starting in chapter 9, verse 1. Now when, or after these things have been completed, the princess approached me, saying, 
the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands. According to their abominations, those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons. So that the holy race has intermingled with peoples of the lands. Indeed, the hands of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. I hope you caught something there in the beginning of verse 1 and 2. We'll talk about this in a moment. But let's first look at the first observation they had. The extent of it. Look at verse 1, particularly the first part of verse 1. It affected the people of Israel. The general population. The everyday people, as we would call them, the lay people. It was not just them. Look at the text. It affected the priests and the Levites. The spiritual leadership was full of this sin. It's no wonder why the people were sinful when the spiritual leaders were doing the same thing. But then again, that's the kind of spiritual leadership that sinful people like to listen to. What a better way to justify ourselves than to hear people talk about and promote and make it easy to be in sin. Teachers and preachers who help us do that. And Paul warned about this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 2 through 4. Listen to what he tells young Timothy. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine or teaching, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. He warns young Timothy about that. And in our text, we see the spiritual leadership not only ignoring it, but they're caught up in it. And tragically, just like back then, today, we have many preachers and teachers who, in the effort to be liked, quit reproving, rebuking, exhorting with long-suffering and doctrine. They quit doing all that and decide to tickle the ear. They want to be liked. When we pat it on the back. And that's what happened with the remnant. Not only did they quit teaching the people about it, they went right along practicing in it with them. And that takes us to the nature of the sin. So the extent of it, it started at the leadership and worked all the way down to the people. We have to look at the extent of it, and then that takes us to the nature of it. Now, to understand the nature of this particular sin in this text, we have to go all the way back before the Israelites crossed the Jordan into the Promised Land. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. God told the people through Moses, When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you're entering to possess it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, Gergesites, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Prozites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Listen to how he describes these nations. Seven nations greater and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, 
then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show them no favor. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take your daughters, take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. Did you catch the reason why? First of all, God is telling these nations are stronger than you. I'm delivering them up to you. You need to utterly destroy them. Don't give your your sons and daughters in marriage to these people because they will lead you astray to serve other gods. And we hear that. We're like, well, why would God do such a thing? Is it racially motivated? No. And I just say this. He knew that if they intermarried with these people, these pagan people, they would lead his people astray. They would adopt the religions of the pagans. And the same thing still works today. Now, i got to be... Very careful what I'm about to say. People think it's old day. If, if you're a Christian and you decide to date a non-Christian, that can be trouble brewing. You've got to look at the convictions or beliefs that person has, how they match up to yours. Because it can lead into a situation that is very bad for you. And some people say, well, I'll date them and then I'll marry them and I can witness to them and I can change them. And sometimes that happens, a lot of times it doesn't. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, we have this warning, Do not be bound together, literally unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? The danger is, is when you marry a non-believer, it's going to cause tension in your marriage. Especially when you have children. How are you going to raise those children? What moral foundation are you going to give your children? I'm not, you know, there's been people, I've known people who married non-Christians and they became a Christian. But there's a reason why God is saying, look out for this. Don't get involved in it because it can be a very slippery slope. You can get yourself in a situation. And this particular situation, he told them outright, if you're going to marry with these people, they're going to lead your sons away from me and serve other gods. And that's the reason why. And if we're not careful, it can still happen to us. See, the same effect happened then, and it will happen now when we ignore God's word. There are consequences. And we have to be aware of those consequences. And sin always starts with pride, doesn't it? Well, I, I, I can do this. I don't need to be careful about this. I can do this. But that's the way it leads to destruction. And I'm still learning this, brothers and sisters. God is not sitting up there making all these rules and making us jump through all these hoops. God knows us better than we know ourselves. And he's telling us, don't even open that door, Tim, because once you do, it will lead you step after step after step to go down this huge slope and you get down at the bottom and you look up going, how did I get here? It's always a slippery slope. What led them, as they're reporting the extent and the nature of the sin to Ezra, they observed the consequences of it. It's easy to see consequences of sin, isn't it? We can see them all around us. Consequences of sin, the drug abuse, alcohol abuse, the poverty, 
shrinking churches, swelling government programs, the riots, the chaos, the hatred. We see it all around us. We see the consequences of it. The consequences of the remnant sin was all around them. Why do you think they were satisfied with the city being in ruins? I mean, they had the temple built, but the rest of the city was in shambles. Which leads us into Nehemiah later on. But the walls were gone. Why do you think they became comfortable with empty temple worship? Why do you think they, they thought it was okay to have temple ceremonies where the word of God was completely left out? It's a natural consequence of their sin. Preaching is always preaching the word. If I'm not preaching the word of God, then it ceases to be preaching. It's motivational speaking at best. I don't care if it's me, whoever comes up in this pulpit on TV, does that so-called preacher open his word and preach from it? Or is it this as a side note? We have to be very careful because it's very true. They'll take one verse of scripture and they twist it just a little bit. It makes it sound good to you and me. That's the reason we have to read our Bibles. You know, Baptists, particularly Southern Baptists, for such a long time were known as people of the book. But biblical illiteracy has run rapid in our churches, where our theology is about two miles wide and about a half inch deep. And I'm just going to say this, I'm going to move on. Not only do we have to know what we believe, but why we believe it. And look at the scripture references. Let the word of God inform our theology, not our theology inform. You know, you have to go with the word of God and what it says. And I talked about a slippery slope because sin never starts off as bad as it's going to get. It's always a downward spiral. Adultery starts off with a look. becomes a thought. And we start dwelling on it. How about murder starts with an unforgiving spirit? Remember Genesis? Sin enters the world, right? How does sin enter the world? Adam and Eve, really, really a lie. And we see the passing of the buck. Adam, what have you done? It wasn't me, that's the woman you gave me. Eve, what about you? It wasn't me, it was a serpent. And then just two chapters later, what do we see happen? The first murder on the earth when Cain killed Abel. Sin's always that downward pull. It never starts off that bad. Sin looks good, doesn't it? Ain't no harm in this. But it takes you down further and further. The horrible shape that Israel had gotten into themselves had started with pride. To telling God what they told God, we can do anything you require of us to make us holy. And God gave them the law. They couldn't do it. Think about this. Ten commandments. Ten of them. Just ten. Not counting the 600 or something my brother preached on the other day. Well, you mentioned it in your sermon from last week. That'd be a long sermon preaching on all those. Ten of them. Okay, well, maybe that's too many. Jesus said you can boil the whole law and all the prophets down to two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And we can't even do that. The law tells us that we desperately need a Savior. We cannot do anything. We, we're not good. Who is righteous? No, not one. The law, as Paul would say, as a schoolmaster drives us to the Savior, drives us to the foot of the cross, to rerun to it and embrace it. We desperately need that. 
And look at Israel's history. Instead of pleading for God's grace, they wanted a king. We want to be like everybody else. We want a king. Well, God gave them the king. Remember the king Saul? What did he do? He did a lot of things. But he multiplied wives to himself. And when he took these wives on, he started practicing their pagan religions. It got worse and worse until the point that the Israelite women were sacrificing their babies to Moloch, the pagan god of prosperity. The Israelites were sacrificing their infants. Read the Old Testament, it's there. They didn't start off doing that though, did they? It started slowly. Look at our own country. We're worried about COVID, and I'm not trying to downplay the disease. I know it's out there. All the people that's killing. But how ironic that I live in a country where we're so concerned about the COVID people, and we should be, that we forget the millions of babies that are being butchered before they're born. You think God's going to sit back and let that just slide? And no matter how you feel about abortion, I mean, we, we live in a country where they want to have partial birth abortion where the baby's halfway out the birth canal and they stick a needle into the soft spot and scramble the brain and kill it right there. Or better yet, just let it be born, lay on the table, let it die on its own. Brothers and sisters, that is murder. See, sin has consequences. Is any wonder why suicide is now the fourth leading cause of death in our country and, of course, abortion is the first? Is it a wonder that cutting and self-mutilation is one of the top problems in our high schools today? And when the princess came to Ezra with this report, they observed the extent, the nature, and the consequences of it. They knew it, and they saw it, and they knew the downward spiral they were on, and they have to do something about it. And here comes the hardest one of all. That when I, when I noticed this, it's like the text reached up and choked me. The instigator of the sin. Look at verse 2, the last part of it. The princess and the leaders came to Ezra reporting this. They see this particular sin, right? Look at the first part of verse 2. Who was the instigators? Who was forced most in doing this? It was the princes themselves, the same people who report this. They had been under Israel's teaching of God's word. And Ezra had been accomplishing his mission all along. He studied God's word. He did God's will that he saw in his word. He taught it to the people, and these people had learned. They coupled that to what they saw, and they knew something wasn't right. The simpleness that they saw did not match up with God's word. So when they saw that, what did it make them do? Did they set up a protest? Did they set up a public trial that they could point out to people who were involved in this? Did it make them angry, accusative, judgmental, or hateful? No, it broke their heart. Because only did they observe the sin around us. Look at the text. They observed it in themselves. Imagine being a prince. Going to this prophet of God, telling him about the sin that's going on. And you can see the pagan religions coming on, and people are walking away and serving other gods other than Yahweh, their one true living God. And you go to him and go, this is going on, and instead of pointing fingers at the rest of the people, say, we're our foremost in this. We're leading the people down this path. See, it's easy to see sin in somebody else. 
it's harder to see sin within yourself. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the vision of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow. Listen to this. And able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. When you read the word, you study the word, it's going to cut through all that stuff. All those filters we put out and got right to the heart. This is the tensions of the heart. See, it's very easy to see the sin around us. It's easy for me to see your sins, your faults and shortcomings. I can see the ways in which you don't model Christ in your life. And just like me, you can see the same things in me as well. But you know what's hard to see? When you're that prince, it's hard to see that the hand of the princess had been chief in leading the people in this. It's hard to see yourself as the chief of sinners. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, I, I'm not that. I'm better old so-and-so. And we always justify ourselves like that, myself included. I don't go to that church because I'm better old so-and-so. I don't go to church because of all the hypocrites. Have you ever heard that? If I really think that, I guess the Apostle Paul was worse than me. Because Apostle Paul writes again to Timothy, 1 Timothy 1.15. He says, it's a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. That's great. We can all agree with that, right? Jesus Christ came to save sinners, but he adds this with it. Among whom I'm foremost of all, or I'm chief. Apostle Paul says, I am chief of all sinners. I'm not above any of you. That's hard. And I want to emphasize this again. When you, when you look at those two verses, and you know the this, this story of we've been walking through Ezra to this point, where the leadership goes before Ezra and says, this horrible sin's happening. We, God forbid us to do this, but we think we know better than God, and everything's going on. People are being misled. And you know what? It's not necessarily people's fault. It started with us. We've been cheap in this. It's hard to admit that, isn't it? And we like to look around, as, as Charlie said earlier, Blame the left, blame the right, blame the president, blame Congress, blame the governor, or blame whoever, fill in the blank. But before we go there, we have to make sure that our eyes of our heart, as we just sang a minute ago, are open. How do you see your sin this morning? The fact is we can do all the prayer, the fasting, and preparing to do God's work that he wants us to accomplish. But if our hearts are not right before God, it will not go anywhere. We can flounder around and do some things on our own. But if our hearts are not right, God's not going to be in it. And you can know the extent and the nature and the consequence of sin all day long. But until you get to the point where you can stand before God, and say, Lord, I see the sin problem. I see it in this world, and I see it in the church, and I see it in my home. I see it, I know how far it reaches, I know how deep and how wide and how awful it is. I know I can't rationalize it or justify it, and I know the consequences of it. Lord, I see it, 
and I know it. And Lord, I'm chief in this trespass. Until we get to that point, as individuals, yeah, we can flounder around and do some things, but it won't last. Brothers and sisters, if we humble ourselves and we confess our sin, God will do things through you that you can't possibly imagine. And this church, and I will go on to say the church of America in general, if we confess our sins and get right before God, He will do things through the church that we can't possibly imagine. We're all sinners saved by grace. But are we willing, are we humble enough before God and say, God, this is it, this is what I, I give it to you. And this is not a one-time deal. I mean, it's, it's not walking the aisle on a given Sunday morning and, and praying, but it's a daily dying to self. It takes every day, every hour, almost every moment. Do you notice how much the Bible repeats itself? It repeats almost the same message over and over. The Old Testament, you see the law and you see the consequences of sin. And you see, no matter in the Old Testament, no matter how hard we try as human beings, we can't follow the law of God. So the Old Testament points to Christ. The New Testament talks about the love and mercy. And it points back to Christ, as Brother Roger said last week. He said it so, I'm going to probably burst you, I'm going to try to quote you. That at the cross of Jesus, God's mercy and his justice were satisfied in that one act. Think about it. God dealt with sin. His justice was satisfied by the sacrifice. You realize that I and you deserved what Jesus went through that day. But he took our place. So God's justice was, was satisfied in that moment with that sacrifice. But then his love and his mercy, which he loves to pour out on poor people, was also satisfied because if you believe in Christ, and you confess with your mouth that he is Lord, you have forgiveness. Forgiveness and mercy. Justice all coming together in that one moment. And you know, you can tell that God was satisfied with it. The resurrection. As though God spoke down to Jesus, arise, my love. It's like I said before. You ever ever seen a tidal wave, either predicted on a movie or maybe a picture? A huge wave, a gigantic wave that you can't escape. It's raging. You ever ever been to the beach where it says, uh, caution, riptide is heavy? When I was stationed in Hawaii, I was younger. I'm not, well, I like to think I'm a little smarter today, but a lot of times I'm still ignorant. The flag is flying. Danger of the current riptide. Ah, we know better. We got out in that on the north shore of Oahu. We got out there about five, I mean, we're probably from here to the parking lot in waste water, up here on our waste and water. 
And those waves would come, and they'd pull the undertow was so great, it'd go down your ankles, and you would literally get pushed into the sand with your feet. You couldn't move. The wave would crash on you. You come up for a breath just long enough to see another wave come down. Well, we lasted out there about 35 minutes where we made our way out. I have a lot more respect for that flag now. But imagine a wave like that coming at you. And you have nowhere to run. You can't do anything. You're stuck. No matter how try, you can't move. Your feet are stuck in the sand. You see it coming at you. And you, there's nothing. And you think to yourself, this is it. Imagine for a moment that that wave represents all God's wrath and his justice. It's coming at you. Jesus, on the cross, right before he, he died, he, he said, it is finished. And God's wrath in the Old Testament is always portrayed as a bull or a cup being poured out. You see that in the book of Revelations, being poured out. And here's my point. Jesus took that cup. A huge wave, if you will. All of it. All God's wrath. His anger. How much he hates sin. Jesus took all that and in that cup, in that moment, drank it all down. For you and for me. And when he took everything that that needed to be taken to fulfill the law and the scriptures, he turned the cup upside down and said, It is finished. That's why the gospel is called good news. Because he took on God's wrath. But this message this morning is very personal. Do you see the stuff happening around you? And before we can look at and blame anybody else, the hardest, difficult thing to do is to ask God to search us and not hold anything back. Don't try to justify it. Don't try to rationalize it. Just say, yes, I've sinned against you, God. And I'll end with this. Remember a guy named David? One of the most famous, beloved kings in the history of Israel, even to this day. People look back at Israel during that time, what a great kingdom Israel was during the time of David. Let's take a look at David for a second. He he lied. He committed adultery. He committed murder. But yet God would tell us that he's a man after his own heart. I think I know why. Because when he was confronted with sin, or David sensed that sin within himself, he was always quick to confess and repent. He always would say something like this. Look at the book of Psalms. Against you, O God, have I sinned. Because the first thing we need to do when we confess sin is confess it to God. Because that's who we offend first and foremost of all. And once we get that in line then we need to go seek the forgiveness of others. We're living in difficult times, brothers and sisters, no doubt about it. I don't know how all this is going to Well, I do know how it's going to end. Jesus Christ is going to come back one day. But I don't know what tomorrow may hold. It doesn't look great. It looks kind of grim, doesn't it? The country is in deep trouble. Some churches are floundering. 
There seems to be an attack against Christianity that's ramping up. And the list goes on and on and on and on. God is our only hope. We want to see things change. And we want to see people come to Christ. And it begins with you and me. And it begins to get real with God. No more pretending. No more holding back. And I'm going to add this one more thing. When we're praising God, let's be honest. Don't be looking around nobody else. Have you ever felt the need to just kneel or come up front or even raise your hands? Don't hold back from God. Don't do it as show, but if God's lead, don't hold back. That still small voice going off in your heart right now, do not hold back. We need to be like those princes and spiritual leaders back in Ezra day. Have courage enough and humble enough to recognize our own sin and confess it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. And we thank you for your mercy, forgiveness, and grace. Father, we ask, as your spirit continues to move, that you would search us and try us. That you would hold up a mirror to our lives. Father, we want to be genuine. We want to be real with you. We want to, we want to experience you and all your wonder and glory. We, we want to see the gospel go forth. We, we want to see people come to the saving knowledge of Christ. Father, we want to deepen our relationship with you. We want to know more about you. And we recognize and confess that we cannot do that until we take care of the sin that's in our lives. Father, we know this is not a one-time deal, that it's, it's a constant battle. And we praise you for your faithfulness and for your forgiveness. Father, you are so, you are so faithful, even when we're not. You're always there. And Father, I pray that you give us the discernment and the wisdom, the boldness and the courage to answer you with a grateful obedient heart. You continue to move, Father. Have your way. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, please?